Hello and welcome back to episode four of Lift the Sink. I'm Paddy Doherty and uh, I'd like to thank everybody who submitted to this episode. Uh, we've got some great stories and really enjoyed reading them. And also to uh, this episode's judge, David Brennan, author of Up or Down, published by Epoch Press last year, which is a book I've reviewed on the show. And it's a fantastic book, so I strongly recommend all of you check it out. So what have we got on today's episode? Uh, we're going to be doing two reviews, a review of Rob Doyle's Threshold and Lynn Buckle's The Groundsman. As well as that, we are going to uh, feature our winning story for episode four, which was Angels in My Caravan by Anne MacDonald. Anne is a Dublin-based spoken word poet and dramatist. Her writing has been published in anthologies and journals, and it's been broadcast on RT Radio. She's been nominated or shortlisted for the Francis McManus Short Story Award, and her debut poetry collection, Crow's Books, is due out in September this year. Just before I start reading the story, I've asked our judge David to talk a little bit about it and what he liked about it. So here is David giving an introduction. Okay, hello to the Lifted Sync podcast and to Patrick Doherty and all of your listeners. I hope you guys are doing well. I'm calling today from Shanghai in China. And I'm calling about the winning story, which I have picked, and it is entitled Angels in My Caravan. The story is a day after the night before story. Basically, two women wake up after consuming large amounts of alcohol, namely, inverted commas, five Chardonnay, one pink gin, and 40 Rotmans. My God, who remembers Rotmans? I smoked a lot of stuff in my time, but even I wouldn't smoke Rockman's. Anyway, so they wake up and they realize they have bought certain objects which they haven't bargained for, they can't remember, uh, including a crystal ball, a set of tarot cards, and to their great dismay, a caravan which has just been dropped off in their front lawn. So the narrative proceeds from there towards a series of um, successes and disasters. And within 2000 words, the story is finished and the story moves quickly. The story moves fast. And the main reason that it does so is because it is well written and specifically the dialogue is on point and the dialogue is natural and it drives the narrative and I think this is the strong point of this story there's a lot of good sentences in there and uh, it's believable and overall it has a nice swift pace I was not bored and the story was good enough to to uh, sustain my interest to the end so congratulations to the writer of Angels in My Caravan like the story, like the setting, like the idea. So keep it up. Good work. And uh, thank you, Patrick Doherty, for asking me to judge this competition. And I will keep listening to Lift the Sink. What a great podcast and uh, what a great way to put down an hour or two once a month or whenever it's on. All right. OK, thank you. Angels in My Caravan by Anne MacDonald 
I swear to God, Betty, we're going straight to hell. Will we open it, though, before we send it back? Pauline held the heavy box to her ear and shook it slightly. Not broken anyway, Betty, she said. Not sure what Amazon's return policy would be on a crystal ball that arrives in smithereens. Betty opened up a black plastic bin bag and counted the empty wine bottles as she put them into it. She emptied the ashtray that was full of cigarette butts, coughing loudly as she tied it closed. Five Chardonnay and one pink gin and forty Rotmans, Pauline. I think we have a problem. Pauline placed the box on the kitchen table and stood back to look at it. Betty was trying to pick up a couple of tarot cards that were stuck to the floor underneath the table. And these are a con job as well, Pauline. Do you think it works, Betty? Pauline asked. It's a lump of roundy glass, Pauline. We bought drunk for twenty four ninety nine express delivery from a warehouse in Clapham. What do you think? Pauline proceeded to open the box as her mobile phone rang from underneath a copy of Moore's Almanac. Before she had time to answer it, the doorbell rang. Betty looked to Pauline, who shook her head. It could be important, Pauline. You can't not answer your door. Not everyone is looking for money. Betty marched into the hall towards the front door. Just as she turned the key, she heard Pauline scream, No, Betty, say no, we don't want it. We were drunk. Tell him to take it back. Betty opened the front door to find a lime-green caravan that had seen better days in the driveway of Pauline's house. A jeep was driving away at speed from the gate. Betty waved frantically to the occupant. She ran into the street as a large redhead appeared out of the passenger door, shouting, Pleasure doing business with you, ma'am. Betty stood in the middle of the road in her bare feet. We didn't actually buy the bloody caravan as well, did we, Pauline? Pauline walked towards the caravan and turned a rusty handle on the door. It fell off. The door swung open and a feral cat screeched as it jumped out and took off in the direction of the jeep. Inside the caravan smelled of damp, grease and cat. A plastic sign hung on the wall saying, Better Battered Burgers. Betty appeared at the door of the caravan, holding her shirt over her mouth. I thought we were only looking undone deal for the laugh. How did we pay for this? Don't tell me we use mixed credit card, Pauline. He'll go mental. We have to send it back. Can we cancel the payment? Pauline pulled out a small red stool from under a greasy table and sat on it. She put her head in her hands and groaned. Betty's phone seemed to be taking in text messages one after the other. She held it in front of her and squinted in the dim light of the caravan. Stepping outside to see better, she tapped on the message icon, stopped dead in her tracks, then screamed. Pauline, you didn't actually set up the Facebook page as well. You said you wouldn't make it go live, that you were only messing. There's a hen party from Loch Shinny wanting to book for tomorrow lunchtime on Scary's Beach. Pauline came to the door of the caravan and held out her hand for the phone. She scrolled through the messages silently. Betty wrapped the side of the caravan and kicked the soft tires. We need to get this back to wherever it came from and get the money we paid for it back on Mick's credit card before he finds out it's gone. He'll go ballistic, Pauline. He's already paying all your bills and he only gave you that card in case the, in case the kids got sick or his mother needed something. We have three days before he gets home from hospital. Do you want to give him another heart attack? What was the name of the seller? Do you remember? Pauline handed Betty back the phone and said, John Smith. Betty nearly exploded with frustration. John Smith? John Smith, are you having a laugh, Pauline? Pauline stood still and looked at the caravan, then back at Betty. 
How much is the holiday you wanted to book in Greece, Betty? It's not right, Pauline. We can't do it. No good will come of it. Pauline lit a cigarette and smiled at Betty. How much? Betty kicked the soft tires again and tried to close the door, which swung open repeatedly. 320 half-board. Pauline took Betty's phone back, scrolling through the messages and counting under her breath at the same time. 20 women at 35 euro ahead equals 875 euro? We could be done and dusted by tomorrow afternoon, and then we can send the caravan and the crystal ball back, and no one will be any the wiser. Betty folded her arms and looked straight into Pauline's eyes. No. The Ford Fiesta objected strongly to towing a lopsided caravan to the beach, and Pauline took over half an hour to park it on a spot of hard sand near the entrance. The sun threatened to make it out from behind grey clouds to take the chill out of the morning air. It's giving rain, said Betty. She wore a long purple velvet coat she had kept from her vegan hippie Buddhist phase. It was treadbare in parts and hung to her ankles. Pauline wore her jeans but covered them with a floral top and long earrings. They had got to the beach before day-trippers started arriving and set up a row of mismatched plastic chairs alongside the caravan. She lit a candle she had left over from Christmas that lent an air of either mystery or mixed spice to the greasy interior. She was not sure. She peeled the label off the crystal ball and smoothed out her best tablecloth. Betty had covered two kitchen stools that were either side of the table with pieces of material she had kept for cushion covers that never got made. Pauline took two Imodium. The beach warden was not due on duty until three in the afternoon. In the distance, Betty could see a large gang of girls wearing matching neon pink t-shirts and tutus. Betty tried to straighten the line of plastic chairs, but the sand was softer in some places than others, and several of them were dangerously lopsided. As the gang of laughing women approached, she heard Pauline breaking wind loudly inside. Sorry, nerves, shouted Pauline as she sprayed the air with potpourri aerosol. Don't light a cigarette in there for God's sake, Betty shouted before turning to greet the gang of women, some of whom were staggering onto the beach chairs. One of them missed the chair altogether and fell onto the sand laughing and holding a plastic tiara in one hand and a bottle of Prosecco in the other. Bride first! shouted Pauline from the caravan. The giggling women pushed the woman with the large L-plate stuck to her back towards the door of the caravan. By mid-afternoon, Pauline and Betty sat at the table counting out over 700 euro in coins and notes. We'll have to put a Facebook post up to say that we can't predict pregnancies, Betty. Three of those women asked if they were going to have babies and the woman with the ripped jeans asked me if she was the right gender or not. I am shattered. But you are going to Greece, and I am going to pay the mortgage before the final demand for the first time in a year. What did you tell them, Pauline? Betty counted the notes out in one pile and stacked the coins in lines of five euro each. I told them that nature would take its course, and I told the girl with the ripped jeans that women are very strong and knew instinctively what the right thing to do is. She hugged me and she told me she was going to sit her mother down tonight and tell her what's what. Ah, oh, Fair play to you, Pauline. You're getting good at this. I am not, Betty, and neither are you. We are getting rid of this caravan this afternoon before Andy Shortleg gives us a ticket for parking on the beach without a permit, and someone asks us to predict the lotto numbers. Betty sighed and held up her phone to show Pauline a string of unanswered calls to John Smith. As she did so, a text beeped in saying, Took a test. You were right. 
I am pregnant. Thank you so much. Just put your details on Instagram. The women groaned together and Pauline lit a cigarette. She inhaled and exhaled slowly, tapping her fingers on the table like she always did when she was thinking. We need a plan, Betty. We can donate this caravan to the homeless. We can close down the Facebook page and if anyone asks, we can just say that we were only doing it for a bit of fun and when we realised that people were starting to believe we could tell fortunes, we stopped. Betty nodded as she tidied the piles of notes into their correct denominations. Her phone rang and she jumped. Not recognising the number, she answered it in the posh voice that she usually reserved for school teachers and dentist receptionists. A young female producer from the national broadcaster's Joe Duffy show asked if she could speak to one of the crystal bells in Scaries. Betty put the phone on speaker and Pauline pulled hard on a cigarette. Uh, this is Betty. Do you want to speak to Pauline? She handed the phone to Pauline who was gesticulating wildly that she did not want it. Pauline agreed to be interviewed on Monday morning. When she put the phone down, she burst out laughing, hysteria taking over where there was little left in the way of common sense. Betty decided to eat. There's a chip shop open on the main street and I am going to eat a corporate lunch for two, Pauline. Put the money in my rucksack and hide it under the table and for God's sake, take in the chairs before we get any more punters. And will you put that bloody fag out? The smoke has the eyes cut out of me. She was, by her calculation, gone no more than 15 minutes. When she returned to the beach, she saw a large crowd gathered around the burning caravan. Several of the hen party women were comforting Pauline, who was shouting about getting into the caravan for her handbag. The beach warden stood with a ticket in one hand and his mobile phone held to his ear. He was giving detailed instructions to the fire brigade about the soft sand and best access point for the beach. Betty held the warm bags of chips close to her chest as black plumes of smoke punctured the skyline. Pauline bawled like a small child. The warden said that she was lucky to get away with her life and she could get another old handbag in pennies any day of the week. Betty pulled Pauline away from the crowd and the burning caravan and sat her on a low wall as the fire brigade screamed its arrival. She handed Pauline a battered burger and chips. Pauline, she said slowly, I think you should seriously think about giving up the fags. So that was Angels in My Caravan by Anne MacDonald. A uh, big thank you to Anne for uh, submitting that. Uh, and she has told me as well that it's been worked into a play, which I think, uh, I think it would work very well in, uh, on the stage. It's very, very funny. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the second part of the podcast, which we are uh, temporarily calling The Cringe Review. And the first book that I'm going to review today is Threshold by Rob Doyle. Now, this is a kind of a kixiotic tale of a writer's search for meaning through sex, drugs and literature. And I feel quite conflicted about it because on the one hand, I read it in in almost one sitting, I really devoured it and I was captivated by it throughout. But on the other, I was also vaguely disappointed with it and I felt like at times its substance doesn't quite live up to its style. A lot of people are having, I think, difficulty classifying what exactly it is, but I read it as a, as a memoir or autobiographical fiction and I suspected there were fictitious elements to some of the stories, but most of them I took on face value that they are 
that have happened to uh, the writer Rob Doyle in his life. So basically he goes around traveling mostly in Europe and Asia, taking lots of drugs, having lots of weird sex and reflecting on his relationships and his love of literature and his relationships with writers. And that, that element of it was something that stuck with me in particular. I think in part, I interpreted this book to be an attempt to revive the cult of the author with Rob Doyle playing the kind of dual roles of cult leader and cult follower throughout. As I said, he visits the graves of his literary heroes and he recounts their biographies and major works and ponders their evolving relevance to him. He seems, not unlike myself, drawn towards writers who have, who have been endowed with a, a literary spirit partly by the tragedy and the depravity of their lives. Writers who are living out what seems like prophecies that, that art has divined for them. Uh, like He definitely seems to go in for the notion of the writer as a kind of a, an outsider or a martyr in some sense. Rob Doyle is, I think, one of the first modern writers I've come across for quite some time whose personality or legend interests me as much as, as his writing. He seems to go to great lengths here to seek out the extremes of experience in order to report back from the front to those of us who are too gutless to ever go to war with our senses. Uh, but at the same time, I think that this is also where it, uh, the book, for me, not dragged, but I, I, I tended to zone out a little bit, especially with the descriptions of psychedelic experiences. Because I think uh, Frank Zappa has a great quote that writing about music is like dancing to architecture. And I think something similar could be applied to writing about psychedelics. I think that that type of experience is very difficult to translate to people who haven't experienced it. And uh, it, that's, that's one thing that I found with it. it. It just, a part of me, like when I, when I came to a part of the book where he was about to start talking about a drug experience, I was a little bit, oh, here we go. But at the same time, where the book is at its strongest, I think, is when it's dealing with literature and dealing with his own personal life, his failed relationships, etc. And uh, again, he comes across as a very witty, dark, nihilistic type of character who uh, is definitely an enjoyable presence on the page throughout. Another thing that occurred to me when I was reading this book and perhaps it's related to what I've already been saying, is this notion that I think I've heard from several writers at like John Banville and uh, Sally Rooney, uh, this notion that the novel is dead. And although I'm not a big fan of uh, sweeping statements, uh, I think there's perhaps some truth to that, but it's, they've got it the wrong way around. I think it's, it's not the novel that's dead, because I think people are still reading novels. There are a lot of great novels being produced or being published uh, all the time. But I do think that the author is kind of dead. The author as a phenomenon, the author as a kind of cultural heretic, the author as a threatening or subversive dissident. Now, Doyle is certainly a dissident thinker, and I admire this book for its pretension and ego, because I want legends in literature. I want, I want larger-than-life figures who divide opinion. I want to invest emotionally in artists as people and as icons and I think that Doyle sort of serves himself up for this a little bit and as a legend building exercise this novel for me is a complete success as I said the place where it maybe it fails is that it promises an epiphany I feel like it's always on the verge of 
almost delivering a kind of a epiphany to the reader, but it just falls short. And maybe that's a ridiculous thing to expect from a book. Now, I must uh, preface all of this, or well, preface now, I must say that I haven't actually read any of his other work, but I, I definitely want to know. Uh, he's someone who has loomed large in my imagination even before I came around to reading him. And that's because there are a lot of parallels between our lives, I think, or at least at least in my uh, in my mind. And in some ways, I've come to view myself as the little matchstick girl looking in at his holiday feast because we both left Ireland with literary aspirations. We both became English teachers abroad, a career that provided us with a comfortable income without having to invest ourselves too deeply in it. I think we both sought enlightenment through overindulgence. And I think we also subscribe to a similar notion that uh, maybe things like depression is the imagination's rebellion against the, the, the mediocrity or the banality of conventional life and that it's something to be welcomed at times. Yes, where he found success, I obviously haven't. And where he continued to indulge, I more or less have adapted to those conventions and found solace in in a lot of them and in the usual places that people do. Uh, a loving relationship, starting a family, a degree of emotional stability, I suppose. And I, I kind of got the sense at times that where he, where I jumped off that ship, he sailed on. And part of me envies that. So anyway, yeah, that's, that, that book, I definitely highly recommend it. Although, as I said, at times I was conflicted about it. It's, it's definitely, he's definitely a fascinating character. Uh, is Rob Rob Doyle. Okay, so then the second book that we're going to uh, review is Lynn Buckles' The Groundsman, okay, which is a very uh, entirely different reading experience to Threshold. The Groundsman is a dark and intimate portrayal of a family cycle of abuse. The story is told through the voices of each member of the family, Callie, the mother, her husband, Louis, their teenage daughter, Andy, and their youngest daughter, Cassie, and finally, the Louis brother, Toby. Each voice is, is distinct and it adds its own ingredient to the tragedy. Uh, I want to be careful not to reveal too much plot here because I feel this book is a case where the less you know going into it, the more emotional kick it has. The narrative is very well paced and the detail is subtle and devastating. The spectre of abuse is hanging over every word, yet remains vague and elusive to the reader. I found this to be like, I found this to be powerful, a very powerful rendering of the psychological turmoil of, of such a situation, particularly the degrees of denial and suppression experienced by certain characters. When you know something is happening and you can observe it, yet you are paralyzed by confusion and doubt and the sad and simple desire to, to unlive things. And I'd just like to read a sample to give you a taste of the intensity of the prose. I play the worried wife part, but I am worried about how much I'm supposed to say. I keep quiet. Was it about both you and Toby? I lock it in and concentrate. Your misery is more cheering than mine. I mustn't let you see me smile at that, though. Glide you into the kitchen and smooth your ills away. Beers tonight. Cheers tonight. Any excuse night. For you and me, avoid the fury, expert that I am, that I should be, in fact I shouldn't be, 
drawn into this dance around your reactions, a life of dodging, of covering up, of avoidance and of making way for you. All the clues I had when we were young, to step away from this relationship, to make another choice, then sticking to the comfort of sticking to what I was comfortable with. Our second date when we partied with Toby's friends and you were paralytic drunk. But it wasn't just that, it was the vicious way you spoke to me, full of bile and hate, and you explained it away the next day, as a drinking binge, a blur, an aberration. It would never happen again, just give it another chance, you said. You weren't like that at all. So that was just a short excerpt from The Groundsmen by Lynn Buckle. And uh, I really highly recommend this book. It was uh, harrowing at times, but I flew through it. Uh, the, the writing is gripping and it's, uh, it's something that really it pulls you in. And I definitely recommend it to everybody. Okay, so we're nearly at the end now. Uh, I'm going to finish up by thanking a few people. Uh, obviously, a big thank you to Anne MacDonald for contributing her story, Angels in My Caravan, and also to this episode's judge, uh, David Brennan, who's the author of Up or Down, another book, as I said, I've reviewed here, and it's uh, definitely a great book, one of the best books I read last year. I'd also like to give a, a big shout out to Connor Plunkett, who edits and produces this podcast. For every episode, I send him a big mess of audio, and he clips it together and turns it into something that I hope that hopefully people can listen to. Uh, so we're going to wrap it up today with uh, a poem that I've written myself. I don't usually write poetry, but uh, every now and then I come up with something and uh, I don't know where else to send it or put it out there. So I'm going to read it to you now as a means to get it off my chest, I suppose. Only sinners forgive. A middle-aged man finds a home for good Guinness, but no one dares sit near him for fear such sorrow be contagious, because for him every day is an anniversary for the woman he watched dying from the inside out. He doesn't measure the loss in years, there aren't enough decimals to divide and count the time. In a place this small, he's to be avoided. Leave him here to music, rock him like a wagon wheel. There's not much banter to be had, save for five or six young lads, out for the night, seeking the adventures that were once to be had. Of a Celtic tiger weekend, this town used to roar, but where's that roar heard now? London, Sydney, New York. Pockets of crack to which their laughter reaches out. Smelling of hair gel and links, they eye up the girls in the corner, wondering whether they're worth the risk and reputation. For these are not the kind of girls you bring home to Mammy or walk hand in hand with to Cathedral Mass in a town where rumour travels fast, tread carefully. The girls themselves don't mind the attention, worry not what motives send looks in their direction. They've long laid to rest their notions of the good man, wasted their youths, trying to change the bad ones. It's a tired old mystery how some girls find love with all its trimmings while others are destined to be used. A fleeting caprice between drink and fast food. Love is socio-economic and above all cruel. So the boys are free to gawk and the owl lads too. A face I vaguely know returns from the toilets, sits down at another man's pint, sips until he sees his own coat and Guinness, three seats down. With a chuckle to himself, he goes back to his stool. I think I know the face now. He taught me maths in school. At last the music shifts 
away from country gibberish to Ella Fitzgerald, cry me a river. All chatters arrested and the room goes cold, a pub perplexed by the ache in her soul. It's a sadness we can all absorb. It's the one from which we've been born. It's the damp on the walls, the dust on the floor, the froth and the dregs and the dents on the door. It's a melancholy laced with rage. Cry me a river, she moans. Only sinners forgive. Only sinners condone.